Morning, church. So, <laughs> uh, thanks a lot, Eric. Um, I don't think in seven years of preaching here that I have ever stood out there with about three minutes to go before I was to be on the platform and felt as if God was telling me that the thing that I was going to preach on today was not the thing that I was supposed to preach on today, but rather it was something else. So that happened this morning. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a sermon light on what I was supposed to talk about this morning. And then I'm going to preach the message that I feel like God wants me to preach this morning. And then we're going to take communion. All right? So that's what we're going to do. All right. Um, Let me start out just by saying that uh, I celebrated 17 years of marriage yesterday. So that was exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I feel like 17 gets a bad rap. It's not really an exciting number. You know what I mean? Like, even 13 is unlucky, right? But 17 is just kind of, eh, you know, whatever. So celebrate that. Uh, But I did find out also late last night that there's another couple who this week is celebrating 50 years of marriage. And so John and Glenda Edmondson, you're here this morning, I think, right? Yeah, wave your hands. Everybody know who you are, right? Give them a little shout out. So, 33 years, right? I got 33 years to get to where you are, okay? All right? Hopefully I'll be there. Hey, uh, remember back in the day when a handshake meant something? Anybody remember that? I don't, okay? (laughs) I don't think in my lifetime a handshake has meant much more than hello. But there was a time, my grandparents talk about it, Um, certainly my great-grandparents would have known it and, and prior to them, but the time when a handshake meant something. In other words, if someone wanted to buy a car or buy a horse or whatever, right, they would just go to someone and say, hey, I'm interested in your horse, right? Check him out, look him over, and if the deal was to be done, a handshake, a handshake is what sealed the deal, right? They called it a gentleman's agreement. I think it started over in England somewhere like everything proper does, right? Um, But this gentleman's agreement, this idea of let's shake on it, and if we shake on it, then we have a deal in place. The handshake was typically more than sufficient to enforce a contract between two parties. Any lawyers in the room? Would a handshake do the job today? (laughs) No, not even close, right? It feels like to do just about anything now, you need a stack of papers about this thick. Remember as kids, we used to say, cross my heart, hope to, kind of violent, right? Stick a needle in my eye? Like, man, I don't know why. That, it, I never thought of it that way, but it's pretty violent. But anyway, uh, the principle behind all of that was what? That a person's word meant something. So that if they said, this is the way it is, then in fact, that's the way that it was. Well, boy, have times changed. People today don't rely on the words spoken by others. Intentions, after all, change so quickly, especially in the business realm. The use of more formalized contracts, uh, hiring lawyers, so on and so forth, these things are now necessary in order for a business deal, or really just even a personal deal, to be done. The fact that more often than not, people change their minds or people go back on their word. The fact that one's word is not nearly as solid or reliable as it used to be. These are all reasons why a handshake just doesn't do it anymore. Um, I would even go so far as to ask if really 
anyone's word means anything to us. Now, clearly there are those people that you're closest to, your spouse, your family, uh, your closest friends, kind of your inner circle, right? Those are probably the people who if they say, hey, this is the way it is or this is the way it's going to go down, I mean, generally speaking, you, you trust these people. You believe these people. But really outside of that inner circle, how trusting are you? In fact, if I were to have you rate yourself this morning on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being trust no one, and 10 being I trust everybody, right? Where do you rate yourself? So how many would say I'm a 1 to 3? Trust no one. I'm pretty untrusting. Okay, thank you for your honesty, right? Get it? Honesty? Thank you. Okay, so uh, let's say 4, 5, and 6. You're somewhere in the middle. Like, yeah. Okay, that's probably the majority of the room. Anybody like a 7, 8, 9, 10? Any like true gullible fish out here? Like, oh yeah, I love everybody. <laughs> okay, all right. So not many of us anymore, right? Okay, so I have a couple of questions that I actually want you to turn and talk with the people next to you about this morning. Is that uncomfortable? Good. All right, so this is the way this is going to work. I'm going to ask you a question, and you're going to turn, and you're going to talk about it for a second. All right, so here's the first one. Who is someone in your life that you completely trust? Okay, 100% trust. And why? Go. Talk about it. All right, I'm calling it, I'm calling it. All right, good job, well done. Nice discussion, I like that. I wish my youth group sounded that loud when I discussed. All right, so here's the second question. No doubt there is probably someone in your life that you don't trust. Now, what I don't want you to do right now is tell the other people who that person is, okay? Oh yeah, let me, all right, don't do that. Uh, but why is it that you don't trust that person? So that's really what you're talking about. Why you don't trust the people that you don't trust, okay? So don't mention names, but just why. All right, go. Less conversation on this one. All right. All right, all right, all right. Good discussion. Thank you for obliging and, and doing what I ask, okay? It feels like with this platform comes great power, so uh, I might have you stand on your head next. Um, so the question then really is this. Which one of the two types of people that you just described are you? Like, would your worst nightmare this morning be that someone over here, when they were sharing about someone they don't trust, was talking about you, right? Are you a trustworthy person, a person who is worthy of trust? Are you a person of high integrity? Are you the same person when no one is watching that you are when everyone in the whole world is watching? So this whole topic of honesty is really where we're getting to in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply this, yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. 
So Jesus is kind of continuing here in his Sermon on the Mount, describing or defining what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Oaths in and of themselves are not necessarily bad things. We still use them today. We use them in a court of law, okay? Um, So help me God, right? We use them in marriage vows. I do this, I do that, I do everything. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Kidding, kidding. I got to 17, all right? I'm smarter than that, all right. Um, Ordination vows, I will do this, I will do that, right? So What are these oaths that Jesus is talking about? Oaths, by definition, are a solemn promise. They're solemn promises regarding a person's actions or behaviors. People in Jesus' day were starting to swear by all sorts of things other than God to testify that their word was true. They reasoned that if they were to break their oath based on any of these lesser things, then at least it wouldn't be bringing God's name into disrepute, okay, or into despair. So this is why they were swearing by things like Jerusalem or by the throne of God rather than God himself. And so things reached this point where they had gotten so out of control that rabbis decided that they would step in and they would be the ones to determine which oaths were in fact completely binding. They had assumed a role they were never really supposed to assume. And so this, this is the situation that Jesus, Jesus is addressing in chapter 5. Jesus says that everything by which one could swear is ultimately God's. Everything. And demands that people simply be as good as their word is good. Jesus argues the point in part from Scripture. In Isaiah 66, 1, um, he uses this whole declare that heaven is God's throne, earth is his footstool. It's that whole argument that everything is God's. So it doesn't matter what you're swearing by specifically. It's all God's. All O's are binding. That's what he's saying. So really here, the advice is to maybe just simply stop swearing O's altogether. And just let your yes be yes and your no be no. I mean, kingdom relationships are supposed to be governed by just basic everyday truthfulness, doing what you say, having integrity of speech. All of this means that God is reigning here. If God is reigning in my heart, then I am just a truthful person, and you can take me at my word. I don't need to swear by this or that or something else. Of course, there are also examples from both Old and New Testament of how sometimes oaths can get us into trouble. In Judges 11, uh, Jepheth makes a rash oath to the Lord that he will sacrifice the very first thing that walks through his door if he is able to win an upcoming battle. Well, he wins the battle, and then the first thing that walks through his door is his daughter. Herod Antipas regretted making an oath to give his stepdaughter whatever she asked for when she danced at his party. And what did she ask for? She asked for the head of John the Baptist. Peter even swore by an oath that he did not know Jesus while sitting in the courtyard of the high priest. And of course, immediately we know Peter was filled with remorse. In his sermon, Jesus teaches his disciples not to do what these hypocritical Pharisees were doing. Instead, they were to keep it simple. They were to keep their word. We shouldn't have to swear on this or that or the next thing to be trusted. 
one word should be enough. When we say yes, that should be as binding as a vow. When we say no, someone should be able to take that word to the bank. So the question then becomes, what would happen if we, as a community of Christians, of Christ followers, decided to really practice honesty? And maybe even like a different level of honesty, what we call authenticity. What would God be able to do in our church? What would God be able to do in our relationships, in our family relationships, in our work relationships? What would God be able to do with us in our hearts if we would start being truly honest and authentic and real people? I think that people would probably run to a place like that. Like, I would run to Anderson Hills if I knew that it was a community of honest, trustworthy people, people of high integrity. So why don't we? Why don't we sometimes allow ourselves to be completely real, authentic, transparent, honest? Maybe it's fear. Some of us are fearful that if people knew who we really were, then they wouldn't like us. They wouldn't accept us. Maybe it's embarrassment. Some of us are embarrassed by the people that we are. And we're not sure that others can handle 100% transparency from us. Well, it's important to remember that kingdom relationships are governed by truthfulness, honesty, and integrity. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we need to tell the truth and keep our promises. We can trust God because he is always truthful. He always keeps his promises. In Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own, what? Understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. God is trustworthy. He is worthy of our trust. So then we, in turn, should be trustworthy as well, living as God in the kingdom of heaven, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's the sermon light that I was supposed to preach this morning. Now, here's the little sermon that I feel like I need to preach this morning, okay? Um, We're sitting out, I mean, we're singing all these songs of victory. I mean, Eric even said it. He's like, I just, look, I just chose my songs based solely upon the fact that we are victorious in Christ, right? And I'm thinking to myself as we're singing that last song, There may be people in this room who don't understand why we can sing in victory. And and that may be like once in a blue moon just happened upon our church this morning and thought, yeah, we'll give it a try. That may be I've been sitting in this room or in this building for 35, 40, 50 years. And I don't know why I can stand in victory this morning. So I just want to give you a little sermonette of why you can stand in victory so that when we come back up and we sing a song of victory to close, I mean, I'm just going to call it. Even if you didn't have it planned, that's what we're going to do, okay? (laughs) You too can stand and join in the victory, all right? So here it is, guys. Listen, the Bible is very clear about how ever since Genesis, remember Adam, remember Eve, remember that little flannel board Bible story that's in the Bible, right? So ever since Adam and Eve, there has been this thing present in the world inherently through them called what? Sin. And sin is all that bad stuff, right? It's all the wrong choices, the poor decisions, the things that we have done that go directly against God's will for us, God's plan for us, right? And the Bible is very clear about the fact that that sin in our lives separates us from Almighty God. It's like if God was standing over here and we were over here, sin would be represented by this stand. 
it keeps us from being able to get to where God is. In fact, the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it means, right? We can't be in the presence of God. Why? Because God cannot be in the presence of sin. It's just not going to happen. But here's the really great message, and this is why we can claim victory. It's that Jesus Christ stepped into our despair, stepped into our situation, and when there was no way, he made a way. The Bible talks of Jesus as being the mediator of our faith. He is the go-between between us and Almighty God. The Bible says that we have all sinned and that the wage of our sin is death. That's what we deserve. But it's more than just physical death. It's spiritual death as well. What we deserve because of our sin is separation from God. But the second part of that verse, which is Romans 6.23, says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So yes, we are dead in our sin, dead in our transgression, not deserving to be in the presence of an almighty, holy God. But Jesus steps in and removes the sin barrier. That's what he did on the cross. When we sing all these words about Jesus hanging on the cross and his blood being shed for us and him triumphantly stepping out of the tomb and the empty tomb and the resurrection and we celebrate Easter and we celebrate all of these things, what we're celebrating is the fact that when there was no way, Christ Jesus made a way. Right? So the Bible says that while we were still sinners, living in our sin, because listen, none of us is perfect, and this side of heaven we won't be. We all make mistakes, and we're going to continue to make mistakes. But the Bible is clear about the fact that it's even while we are still in a sinful state, Christ Jesus so loved us that he died for us. So that again, we can get back to God. So that we as finite human beings can reach out and touch a holy God. Romans 10, 9 says that if we will confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be, not we could be, not we might be, not we should be, but we will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin and ultimately saved from the wage of sin, which is death. So by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as that mediator, as our Lord, as our Savior, we can overcome that sin hurdle and get back into right relationship with God. So that's why when we bring people up here from time to time on Sunday mornings and baptize them or commit them as new members or whatever, or we tell people, hey, we've had this many professions of faith this year in our church, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about men and women, boys and girls who have consciously said, I want Jesus Christ to be Lord of my life so that when we sing songs of victory, I can stand in victory. And so again, coming to church doesn't do it. Being a good person doesn't do it, right? Like, I can't overcome my sin just by being good because I'm still a sinner. I can't overcome my sin by coming to church. It's not going to make it happen. I can't say the right things, do the right things, be good enough, try hard enough. It's not going to happen. The only 
way that I can get back into a right relationship with a holy God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And that's the gospel message. And sometimes I'm convinced that we come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And we never hear the most fundamental truth of the gospel, which is found in John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. God loved us. He loved you. He loved you right where you are so much that he was willing to send his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you so that through placing your faith and trust in him, you could have a life, a life abundant this side of heaven and a life eternal with him on the other side of death. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to take communion and we're going to remember his body broken for us. We're going to remember his blood spilled for us. And we're going to join together as the family of God in celebration over who God is and what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. But before we do that, I want to offer an invitation. I want to offer an opportunity. If you're out here this morning and you've never heard that most fundamental teaching of the gospel, you've never made a profession of faith in Christ, you've never stood out, stood up, and said with confidence, I want Jesus to be my Lord, not me, not my work, not my money, not my family, not sports, not anything else. I want Jesus to be my Lord of my life. I want to give you that opportunity to do that this morning. So bow your heads with me. I'm just going to pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house today, to worship together. Lord, we just love you, and we celebrate the victory that we have because of Christ Jesus. We celebrate that. God, it's something I need to celebrate more in my life. More in my life. So God, forgive me. Forgive me sometimes that I walk around defeated in my stuff, in my junk, even in my sin. Because, God, you've made me alive through a relationship with your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray right now for anyone who has entered this room today unaware of this fundamental teaching, unaware of the fact that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that Jesus is the way to you, a holy God. And Lord, I just want to invite them right now in the silence and in the time of prayer, Lord, to just pray a simple prayer, and it goes like this. Lord, I am a sinner. I am aware of my sin and that my sin separates me from you. And so today, I want to set aside my sin. I want to ask that your blood would cover it, God, that you would forgive me of it, that, God, you would wash me, and that, God, today, I want to pray and I want to ask that through a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, that I would be able to come back into right standing with you. And so, God, I place my faith and my trust, I place as much of myself as I know into the hands of a God who loves me. I believe Jesus is my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Make me new. Make me new today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.